Welcome once again to another episode of Demand Gen Radio, the one program that brings you all the latest methods and technologies for driving growth and increasing demand. With the voice of Demand Gen, David Lewis. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Demand Gen Radio. You know, when I put the title on the podcast uh, for this episode, I thought, you know, kind of a little bit of a leap because, well, A, you're here, so thank you for joining the program, but you're probably, Jeremy's game, where's that coming from? Well, let me give you the backstory. Uh, In 2017, a movie came out called Molly's Game, and it's classified as an American crime drama film, and it was written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. And I bet a lot of you have seen it because it's a phenomenal movie, and it's the story of Molly Bloom. And she is an Olympic-class skier and ran the world's most exclusive high-stakes poker game and became the target of the FBI. And it's a wonderful film. I don't want to give you any spoilers, but I highly encourage you to see it. And it's a wonderful story about you know, her as a skier, growing up, wanting to be a professional athlete, and her path to the Olympics, and some things that changed in that direction, and of course, as I said, running this game. So what the heck does that story have to do with today's program? Well, if you haven't figured it out yet, today on the program is Jeremy Bloom, and Jeremy is Molly's brother. And, you know, there's, a, I think, a very short little segment I remember where the camera pans, and I can't recall if it was really Jeremy in the video footage or an actor. We'll get to that. But I've known Jeremy for years. I've worked very closely with his organization and his team, and they are one of the best partners that we have. And the people in his organization, just as people and their culture, are amazing. So I asked Jeremy to join me on the program and talk a little bit about his story. And I will tell you, Jeremy is extremely humble. So I would like to try to do what uh, would be, you know, if we were somewhere at a conference together and I was your introduction, Jeremy, I probably would say something like this. So I'd like to bring onto the program Jeremy Bloom. And Jeremy, I'm a big fan of Jeremy's because Well, he went down a career and life path that I always aspired to. I wanted to be on the U.S. ski team, and I wanted to ski professionally, and Jeremy got to do that. He, uh, if you don't know, is a world champion and two-time Olympian. He's not just a world champion. He's a three-time world champion and the only person ever in the history to ski in the Olympics and also be drafted in the National Football League. And... um, very, very accomplished individual. He played for the Philadelphia Eagles and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Won't hold any of that against you, even though I'm a Raiders fan. And uh, it's just really, truly an honor to have you on the program, Jeremy. And for those that don't know, wrote a great book called Fueled by Failure. And that's really the focus of today, talking about the lessons of failing and some other lessons we'll share with you. So Jeremy, thank you for joining me on the program. I understand that you were back up in the mountains this weekend, and while there's no snow, sounds like you were doing some some mountain biking. How was that? And, and welcome. Yeah, well, well, thanks, Dave. Appreciate the introduction, and and always great to, to chat with you. I always enjoy our, our conversations. Um, yeah, so, you know, I was raised in the mountains. I was raised outside. I grew up in Colorado, both my brother and, and sister and I. Uh, my parents have always had a love for the, for the outdoors. Um, and this just happens to be one of my most favorite times in Colorado. It's kind of when the snow is melting and the rivers are really high and 
everything is just incredibly green and, and warm and kind of the new flowers, the, the new vegetation coming to life. So got up to the mountains up in Keystone and did some mountain biking and, and, and some hiking. And, and I always find that to be the most self-balancing and, and also restorative time that, that I spend. The last time I was in the mountains, uh, when it was this time of year, I was up there with my wife, Tiffany, who I know you also know, and she and I were staying at the Ritz-Carlton in North Star. And when we were outside on the patio, all these guys were coming down the mountain on their bikes, and they were in what looked like, you know, like an outfit from the the video game Halo. They had all this body armor on, (laughs) these chest pads and knee pads and arm pads. and And I told Tiffany, I said, God, I would love to do that someday. It looks so fun. And they had built all these different trails and all these different things that they could ride on. But uh, she's like, no, you're, you're not doing that anymore. You're, you would mess yourself up. But you know what I was there to do, and I brought it up, is you know I'm a big drone and RC plane guy. Some people know that about me. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people know that about me. So I built a drone uh, you know, plane that, that I flew. Uh, it was a, you know, a fixed-wing plane and has a camera on it. And my goal was to descend, uh, ascend the mountain, so fly from the base where the Ritz-Carlton was all the way up to the very top. And guess what? I failed. So that kind of leads us into some stories of failure. And the reason that I failed in that flight up the mountain was because there were just so many things I didn't think about, you know, and which is mind blowing when we, you know, land stuff on Mars and the moon, places we've never been. I'd been to this mountain before, but I brought this plane. Uh, One thing that just hindered my flight was the battery that I particularly brought up. Um, I hadn't flown that battery in over a year and it was not holding its charge. So there's no way I'd even have enough power to get up and down the mountain. But the reason that I failed was because the settings for the software, I had put an altitude limit. And so as soon as I started getting to a certain uh, altitude, uh, the plane just started trying to go level and almost go into the side of the mountain instead of climbing. And I realized, oh, that's that's the setting. So by the time I brought it back down, I didn't have another battery and my mission was was over. You've had some failures, uh, much bigger than that, and and much greater lessons to learn. Can you can you talk to me about like what led up to the the book? What happened in your life that led to you writing a book um, called Fueled by Failure? Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I grew up in Colorado, and and uh, my my two dreams um, was to ski in the Olympics and play in the NFL. And I knew that at ten years old, and and I told both my mom and dad that that's what I wanted to dedicate my my life to at ten, and they said, you know, you can do that if you put your mind to it and, and you attack your dreams. And throughout the journey of both of those athletic careers that are incredibly different, you know, not only the, the muscles that you use in skiing compared to, you know, the ones that you would use on a football field as a receiver or as a punt returner, um, but, but also mentally, you know, one's a team sport, one's an individual sport. So, you know, I would, I would, you know, start the regional level and, and, and go forth. And, you know, anytime I would have a setback, whether it be make a mistake or, you know, lose a competition, I would hear, you know, my coaches or people say, well, you know, failure or adversity or setbacks, they just make you stronger, you know, so don't worry about any, you, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure a lot of your listeners and, and you yourself, Dave, as you were, you know, skiing and, and working your way up to trying to make the, the ski team you hear these things, right? But but there's not a lot of depth around them, and there's not a, a lot of lessons and, and teaching around them. But, you know, the universal truth is no matter who you are, I mean, you talked about flight. Well, 
the Wright brothers failed thousands of times before they figured it out. Yeah. Um, M- Michael Jordan was cut twice in, on his high school basketball team. Steve Jobs was fired from Apple. Walt Disney was fired from his first media job for a lack of imagination. So go down the line of the, the most incredible inventions or the most incredible athletes, irrespective of, of who you are or what you're focused on. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll probably fail more than, than you win. Um, and we're kind of brought into life that way. Think about how we learn how to walk. How many times did we fall as a, as an infant before we learned how to do the steps or learn the English language? For sure. So that was really that was really the foundation and the inspiration for me to say, listen, I've heard these kind of quotes my whole life, but I've, I've never had something to dig into and talk to the Michael Jordans of the world and use the antidotes in my life to, to become a world champion in skiing or to become an Olympian or to get drafted in, into the NFL. What, what were kind of the key common points of, uh, of failure adversity that really just helped me recalibrate my compass? And you talked about the battery in, in your plane. Well, you used the wrong battery. Well, the next flight, you probably recalibrated that, ba- that battery. And so that was really the, the reason I wanted to write uh, Fueled by Failure. Um, and it really was a, it was a great educational journey for me. You talked about some of the people that have been fired. You know, add to that list Oprah Winfrey, Michael Bloomberg, Howard Stern, and even Madonna. She was actually fired from her very first job on her very first day, which is something that we share in common. Now, she was fired from Dunkin' Donuts, as I understand. She worked in Times Square, and I think she was throwing jelly on people or herself. I don't know exactly. That's worth looking up. But um, I was fired from my first job, and this was while I was still in college. And I went to work for a magazine, and they had a consultant come in and basically give us all a project that they were doing this customer survey. And she said, hey, here's a survey. You guys take it back to your desk. Let's reconvene later on and see your feedback. I'd love to get your feedback on the survey. And it was my first day, first job. You know, I was a DJ in college, so this is my first job with, you know, actual paycheck working for a company where I had slacks and, you know, a collared shirt on. I think there was a button-down shirt at that at that time. But I got fired, Jeremy, because I had been taking a survey class as one of my marketing classes and, you know, thought, wow, this is great. What a good project. I'll be able to show, um, you know, my skills. And I brought back this totally redline survey where there were a lot of mistakes on it around, you know, like what's the age range, you know, 21 to 25, 25 to 30. So I would say not mutually exclusive, you know, because 25 was overlapped and all this other feedback. And while I thought I was doing a great job in providing that information, um, to them, I no doubt came across as some guy who thinks he knows it all or just was not a fit. And so she walked me into the, her office about 4.30 and she said, hey, thanks for joining us today. Today will be your last day. And I was let go. And so I called my dad and I said, what did I do? You know, I just don't even know what I did. And he goes, yeah, you want to listen a lot more when you first started a company was his advice rather than, you know, maybe you came off at a know-it-all or you think you know it all. And, um, Here's the interesting thing. When when I said, you know, do you have any advice for me to her? And she was a consultant. And I think, you know, I probably made her look bad, you know, because she's a higher consultant and I had this red line thing. She said, um, no, I have some advice. You just, you know, consider running your own company someday. And I never forgot that. It took probably 25 years until I took her advice. But um, I learned so much that day and it, it actually fostered a great conversation with my dad about how to ramp into a new career. So there's always a silver lining from those lessons. And, you know, your sister 
definitely uh, had a lot of uh, a lot of experiences where she probably looked back and at the time, holy cow! But you know, now she's on the speaking circuit. Uh, there's, you know, a great movie. Uh, it was great seeing you and her in Las Vegas when she was doing her first keynote. And now her and story is inspiring so many people. What stories have you shared from your experiences of failing that are, that are big lessons that you pass on? You know, we could take the entire podcast. I mean, you know, I, I, I think I won 11 gold medals, World Cup gold medals on the World Cup circuit, and I competed in probably 50 you know, World Cups over by my ski career. So, you know, we could talk about every single one of those as to, you know, what, what happened. Um, but, but, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that stands out to me and, and, you know, doing the research around, you know, why do some people splat and some people bounce mm-hmm. during, you know, moments of, of adversity is, is really, you know, it centers around the ego. And, you know, as, as we get older and, and as we mature as human beings, um, we create a self-image of ourselves. And sometimes that self-image can be the all-powerful, almighty, and, and kind of the, the guide of how we live our life and the, the decisions that we make. And going back to, to the example of, you know, when we're born into this world, we, we don't have that yet. So we haven't created that self-identity. We don't have that ego. And so really the only way we can learn as infants is through failure, um, whether it is falling, trying to, 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 to walk or muttering through an English language that doesn't make any sense in, in route to, you know, hopefully mastering it one day. But infants don't get discouraged because of those adversities, because of that failure. And you fail so much more as an infant than, than you do as an adult, just trying to kind of learn your way into life. And so there's this whole, you know, and this was pretty universal through everybody I spoke to, incredibly successful people in business and, and athletics uh, around, you know, what the people that can manage setbacks in their life the best, what, what, what are they doing? And typically uh, it is a self-reflection, a journey, a deep journey into, you know, one's own ego of how you can have that, uh, that ego that we all have, have less of an impact. Um, on the personalization, that ha- how we view a setback being, hey, it's my fault. You know, if you would have been fired on, on day one and said, well, Dave Lewis is flawed um, and I'm never going to, to get over it. I'm never going to learn. I'm, I'm just not cut out for this. And, and if that completely pushed you off your path and you identified that as a Dave Lewis failure instead of, hey, maybe I need to listen day one, you know, like, like, like you noted, um, I think you, may, you might have handled that uh, a lot less constructively. So that's what stands out to me is just the power of all of our egos because we all have it. I think to some extent we all struggle uh, with the dominance that sometimes our ego can, can have on us on social situations and whether at the workplace or in athletics or just, just in life. Well, that's, that's good advice. I mean, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm reflecting on some of the what I would consider the big scary times in my career uh, and in my life. And how I was able to push through and, and take on those challenges, uh, I remember you know starting demand gen um, eleven years ago, almost to the day. Well, um, I don't know when someone's listening to this, but it was in June of two thousand seven, and it was pretty. It was it was scary, you know, to quit a salaried position at a fast growing, stable company. Uh, and for me to pivot and take my idea and start from scratch. And like you talked about ego, you know, I do remember thinking, if it's successful, uh, I'll be able to 
give myself and my team certainly some accolades for it, you know, and, and starting the idea. But if it fails, I own that. That's no one else's fault but mm-hmm. mine as, as a CEO, that the buck stops with me and the strategy and vision. And you fast forward 10 years later, every day, I don't know if it is like this for you at, at Integrate, but every day to me feels like day one. There's always new opportunity and new challenges. And one of the things that I share with my leadership team going into 2018, which is a big year for us, I said none of us can fail. Everyone gets, if, if, if you imagine a Monopoly game that you get a card, instead of get out of jail free, it's fail free. You know, f- you, you cannot make any mistakes here at this company. I want you to take risks. And those risks might be new services or new markets or new direction that the company is going in. And don't worry if it doesn't succeed, because the only way that we're going to grow and be successful you know, year after year is by willing to take risks. And I share with them, which I share with a lot of people, that you, you talked about this, Jeremy, that when you're born, all you do is fail. Food drops out of your mouth, you're drooling like you know, you've never swallowed anything in your life, you're falling down, you're bumping your head. <laughs> You know, you're you're cutting your fingers. You're stepping on. I remember my daughter used to step on. Um, there was a place in, in in Grandma's house where the tacks that hold down the carpeting just came through the carpet just a little bit, and she only had to step on that, you know, one or two times to just leap over it every single time. She learned pretty quickly, like that's a little painful spot. And when my second daughter was born, she crawled. Audrey crawled across it, and that was pretty painful. She started crying, and Audrey goes, Emily goes, I know why she's crying. She, she crawled right here, Grandma. It's, it's sharp right there. It hurts. And so you learn that. Here's the problem with that, right? When you learn what's painful in life, you have a tendency to avoid it, I find, right? If you yeah. had stopped competing and stopped you know, in your pursuit to be a world champion, if you didn't win, then you wouldn't have... 20 victories, right? It just it just wouldn't have happened. So we've got to take risks and we've got to fail and realize that, I've, I said this to someone else, here's great advice for anyone listening. I say, where are you happiest? Like right now you can teleport yourself anywhere and where are you happiest? And most of the time somebody will say, and think anybody listening, right now you can be anywhere doing anything. What are you doing? They'll say, I'm on the beach. And I'll say, what are you wearing? <laughs> a bathing suit. And where are you staying? Maybe in a hotel or a little tiny little condo. I go, so what you're telling me is you're happiest when you have the least amount of clothes on your body, you're by the water, on the beach, with a little tiny place. So why do you need to accumulate all these bigger material things to be happy when you can go do that this afternoon or after a quick flight? And I reflect on that myself, and it's really helped ground me that you know, running the company and growing the company, I can take as many risks as I want. Um, I don't want to put my employees at risk, but I want to take as much risk as I can to keep pursuing my goals because I can always go back to the beach if that's my my happy place. Yeah, that that that's pretty funny. I you know, integrate. We have we have five cultural pillars, and you know, it was a great exercise a couple of years ago that that started kind of bottoms up. You know, because I don't think you know, as a leadership team, you never want to you know, kind of sit around a room you know, in a vacuum and say, Hey, what are our cultural beliefs? And if, if you kind of include the entire team and you, you pinpoint what those those values are around culture, um, you have a much better chance of people buying into them. But you, you mentioned, uh, one of yours, our, our five are, you know, centering a group around performance first 
having this element of being entrepreneurial, I mean, to, 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 to your example of not being afraid to fail. Well, if you're jumping out of that, that airplane and assembling the parachute on the way down, you're going to have a lot of moments of uncertainty and a lot of moments of setbacks. Um, and, and ownership, I mean, you know, owning whatever it is that you're doing, radical candor and humility. Those are our five, but I wanted to just, just kind of double click on, on ownership because you mentioned, uh, you mentioned failure. If you think back to when, you know, we were in, in grade school and we were at recess playing around and we, we did something that we weren't supposed to, well, we got punished for that, right? We, we went to the penalty box or if we're in. You know, if we're in, in the classroom and, and we do something bad, well, we, you know, we, we got punished for that. So, so we're somewhat socially conditioned at a pretty young age to not accept responsibility. And if we get caught, try to blame it on someone else. And this idea in the workforce is called victim-based thinking, victim-based mentality. And I'm sure everybody has worked with somebody who could never take personal responsibility for anything. And I think that attitude, I think that mentality is, is one of the biggest cultural viruses for any team or any organization. And so what we've really tried to do um, at Integrate is kind of flip that narrative. And we celebrate people who take big risks and say, you know what, I think this is going to happen like this if we go for it. And if we go for it and it doesn't and they stand up and they say, you know what, that's on me. I thought of, you know, and we celebrate those moments when people take that personal responsibility because, you know, whether it was playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers or, or playing for the Philadelphia Eagles the, or any of my head coaches, it was always the people that I wanted to work for the most or I wanted to lock arms with the most uh, who had enough um, humility and could take that type of ownership in, in any, in, in, you know, situation. So it's something that we work hard at, you know, we've all been victims before. There's no doubt I have. And we all, I, I always have to remind myself um, to evolve to these five kind of aspirational cultural pillars. But I think it's just an incredibly important thing to do is spend time on, on culture and, and define it uh, and, and, and make yourself a little uncomfortable with how aspirational it is. And, you know, be, be honest with yourself when there's gaps. Yeah. I don't know, you know, may have been from reading your book. Were you the one that talked about the percentage of people in prisons who don't accept accountability, that, that they always play the victim, that it would, there was some other reason that they were arrested? Was that, was that in your book? It, it wasn't in my book. I, I have heard that stat before. I don't remember what it, what it was, but... Um, it's like 90% or something like that. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, they're, I, they're I all know. innocent in their mind, or there was a reason right. they had to do what they had to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you can probably trace that back to early childhood development. I think behavioral psychologists would, would point to kind of you know, culture in which we're, we're raised in. And, you know, you're, I grew up in a family. My, my dad's a psychologist. My dad's been a clinical psychologist for 30 years. So I think by extension, I've always been introspective in life. I've always asked questions. I haven't always just accepted the cultural conveyor belt that, that we're on. It's a stamp. This is right. This is wrong. But, but growing up in, in my family, if, if we told the truth, we could never get in trouble. And that was, you know, that was our rule. That was, you know, our family rule. And it played out in, you know, really compelling ways. I mean, if I did something wrong and, and, and I thought there was a chance I, I would get caught, the, the first thing I would do is call my mom and say, hey, uh, you know, I want to tell you something I, I, I messed up on. And we have a family meeting about it. And, but it built this level of transparency 
uh, with, with my parents who were kind of, you know, you could think of them as coaches. You could think of them as managers or bosses at, you know, at a young age yeah. where I, it, w- it was just a safe place to, to, to be authentic. Co- couple lessons there. Um, one, by the way, your dad, who I, I kind of feel like I met a little bit when I saw the movie, Kevin Costner. I know that's not your dad, but uh, in my head, he's he's a little bit of your dad. Um, did you have a chance to meet Kevin, by the way, when, when the movie was being shot? Yeah, I met Kevin, spent a bunch of time at Aaron Sorkin's house nice. uh, with, with my sister as, as they were writing it. And, and, and you know, since you mentioned it, um, a lot of people ask me, you know, how much of that movie was real? You know, because... It, you know, I went to a lot of those games, and I was pretty intimately involved. Though, I, although I never played in her games, I was I was I went to a bunch of them, and surprisingly, you know, ninety percent of the movie is in, is, is accurate, is, is is spot on. The ten percent, the the biggest misconception of that movie is is my dad's character. Um, and, you know, Aaron Sorkin needed a protagonist, yeah, and he kind of built my my father out to be the protagonist for the show. And what Aaron told my dad is, is, he said, you know, my dad's name is Larry. He said, you know, Larry, this is not a documentary. This is, this is a Hollywood movie. And, you know, my dad got the short end of the stick. And so, you know, if you've seen the movie, what's accurate about my dad is, is the tough love. Mm-hmm. There, there is no doubt we were raised in a tough love environment. You know, at, when I was seven or eight and I was skiing with the family, if I didn't, want to ski the black diamond and the family was skiing it well i was skiing it you know there just wasn't there wasn't a choice if you if you fell down in life or you know in, in whatever you get back up you dust yourself off you don't make any excuses and you go a thousand miles ahead forward so so that is true about my dad in the movie but my dad is was so involved and continues to be so involved in our in our in our lives and he's a softy. I mean, this is a guy that cries when people win an Olympic gold medal. I mean, he, he's so he's emotionally available. And in, and in the movie, it really made it out to be like he, he was disconnected from us, um, and he just wasn't you know emotionally available. And that's just the opposite yeah. of uh, of my dad. Well, no, I'm I'm glad you shared that because people do wonder always behind the scenes. I know we talked a little bit about that when we were together in Las Vegas. And, um, you know, Kevin playing your dad, if, if, if you, did you have the conversation when they said, you know, he said, Hey, I wrote a book on fuel to failure. He would have said, well, what's it about? And you would have said Waterworld. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Not, yeah. not Kevin's best, best movie. And that was Aaron's, uh, directorial debut, wasn't it? That was the first movie he had ever directed, it was. I think. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. It was a good movie. Yeah. You know, but your dad clearly great advice as kids, which is be transparent, be open. You can never get in trouble for telling the truth. My parents raised me the same way I've raised my two girls the same way uh and and that has to cascade too to your organization you know I love the culture core value you have of radical candor great book out there by the way if people haven't read that it's a great core value to have because it allows you to talk very openly with each other about our performance and and helping us get to the top of our games and who better than to get coaching from is one another because we know each other so well Let's let's talk about your team um, a bit. First of all, backstory behind you starting Integrate, right? Big, pretty big pivot for you in terms of you know what we've been talking about with skiing and your career in athletics. And what was what was the trigger there? Do you remember back to the day? Tell me the story of the day that you said, you know what, I'm going to start a company called Integrate. Yeah, you know it. Yeah, it's, it started for me in the National Football League. It was kind of at a, a point in time in in my life where. 
uh, I was doing some self-reflection and I was thinking, gosh, you know, for the last decade, I've been, you know, skiing for the U S and playing football and, you know, I'm 25 or whatever I, I was. And, you know, this is going to end pretty soon. What, what, what in the world am I going to do after this? And the NFL has a really great program where you can take MBA classes at Kellogg, Harvard, Stanford, or Wharton. And Wharton was in my backyard in, in PA, you know, at the University of Penn. So I, I, I went there, enrolled, and went to classes in between uh, practices and interned with, with a guy named Peter Lenneman, who became, you know, a, kind of a, a really good friend and a mentor. And, and that's really where I, I think, developed the passion to, to start a tech company. And Peter's advice to me was, you know, go work for somebody else first and get some pattern recognition. And if you see an opportunity, go for it. So that's what I did. I, when I retired from sports, I, I was uh, running customer acquisition marketing at a, at a pretty small but fast-growing startup. I knew nothing about what I was doing. It was the first time I'd ever been in, in marketing, you know, outside of marketing my own brand in, in athletics. But, you know, very, very different to, to customer acquisition marketing in, in, in the B2B space. And about, you know, eight or nine months in, my biggest pain point to scale the marketing organization, um, I didn't feel like anybody was focused on. And, and I didn't think that there was software to do that. And I said, oh, gosh, if we're having problems scaling this kind of operational efficiency problems that we're having at a small startup, I wonder what it looks like at, you know, for, for big mid-cap companies or enterprise companies. So in 2010, uh, co-founded Integrate, and we set out on a journey to, to, to build what we would have liked to had at that company. And, um, you know, there's been lots of twists and turns and yeah. ups and downs and all the things that you would expect for an eight year old startup. Um, you, you know, I know you guys are 11 years in, so you, I know you can relate to that. And, but it's, it's been, uh, the most rewarding and challenging journey of my life. Um, and that's no disrespect to, to football and, and skiing, but, uh, I have so much enjoyed climbing this mountain of what I would call tech or being an entrepreneur and dealing with the, the many mother nature challenges, the, the deathly crevasses and the avalanches and all those things when you're scaling a mountain. Um, and, and the, the reason we've, we've overcome those and the reason the company is so incredibly strong today uh, is because of our team. And, and I appreciate you mentioning them um, in the beginning. And I know you'll, you know, a lot of the, the teammates that I have at Integrate, but it, it is truly a, a remarkable team. I I will mention some names of just some people that I really enjoy working with at the risk of people going, I can't believe Dave didn't say my name. Um, and, and for that, I apologize. But, you know, in terms of folks like Franny, um, who n- are not just in your sales team, but I, I credit her with being, you know, having this great biz dev mindset and for her um, to just align and work with us. Folks like JP, who used to work at DemandGen, who are now on your team, um, also known as John Paul, but JP, just young, energetic, um, you know, wants to win type of person. Scott, uh, you know, just phenomenal thought leader, um, always has a point of view. Uh, and, you know, Tom and Ed and, and all the other folks that we work with on a regular basis, they're just great people. You know, they're the people that when I go to a conference or I'm traveling, I want to know if they're there so I can spend some quality time with them and for you to bring those people onto your team. And it, it seems like it's consistent. I'm sure you've had to fire people along the way. I'm sure you guys have done some bad hiring, but you certainly 
um, you know, lead to those core values of, of getting a great team and doing that. So shout out to those guys. Love working with you. And thank you for being great partners. Um, tell me a story when it wasn't a good day at Integrate, when you guys felt like you were failing in a, in a pivot that you made or something you had to do differently. Because I see the successes, yeah. but I know, I know, you yeah. know, that's the outside in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you mentioning those guys, Tom, Ed, Scott, Franny, and, and, and JP. And just for some context, uh, Scott's our, our CMO and, and, and Franny, and JP, Tom, and Ed are, are all on the strategic account side. And um, a lot of those guys uh, have been with us for, for a really long time. Uh, I love sharing these stories. I'll, I'll take you back. You got to dial the clock back a few years to about 2013. This was about the beginning of 2013. And uh, at the time I was president, we had a different CEO, um, not trying to not take blame for this, but just, for, you know, we were a bit of a different company and finance reported up to the, to, to the, to the CEO. So we, we took a, a loan from Silicon Valley bank and um, we had a controller, not a CFO. And uh, our controller didn't really understand the mechanics of that, uh, of that line. And we end up breaking a loan covenant um, and which is a pretty big deal mm -hmm. when the bank tells you, you break a loan covenant. Typically if you have a, you know, good finance operational team, you should, you, you'll know a couple months ahead that you're at risk of breaking it. You, you know, you call the bank and you work through it, but we didn't, and we were blindsided by it. And it was a time where we were just kind of in the midst of raising a new round. We, we had, you know, maybe a half a month left of payroll. We just broke a loan covenant. Um, so, you know, you could look at it from SVB's position very clearly that this is a business that is, is, uh, definitely going out of business and to protect any of the capital that, that you, you, you gave to us at that, at that time, um, you, you just shut the business down and you call the receivables and, and you hope that there's enough receivables to recover the cash. And it was, um, it was a scary time, but it was also a time of great focus. Uh, when, once I learned this, I've always leaned into these moments in life, and I feel the most alive. So what we had to do, and, and, I, and I forgot to, to meet SVB, um, the, the economics of our business were actually, was actually very strong. We were, we were growing and, and, and doing quite well. Um, but, you know, I, I had to play a card that day that um, – gained leverage back to us in the business. So I, I basically met with them, sh showed them a couple slides of our business and said, listen, I don't mean to be a jerk, but if, if you guys don't modify the loan covenants and give us a $2 million bridge to our next line, I'm shutting down the business today and everybody's going to lose. And, and prior to saying that, I think I got them excited enough about the business that we were doing well. And partially, I think because of the approach and partially because SVB is a fantastic bank to work with. I mean, they're very entrepreneurially friendly. Um, they did it. And so they, they <laughs> we kind of pulled the rabbit out of our hat. They, they modified the loan covenant uh, for us and gave us some leeway and, and also gave us a $2 million bridge loan so that we could pay payroll and close our next round, which we ultimately did. And that was the closest to, to death that, that we had, and, and I always reflect upon that moment. The, the company, we were profitable last year on an EBITDA and cash flow basis. We doubled revenue, and we tripled the year before. We, tri you know, we just put a, our, our name on a building, and you know, the, the business is doing so phenomenally well right now, but I always come back to that moment, and I love sharing that story with, 
all of our teams so so we know where we came from and, and we know how, how difficult it, it has been to, to get to where we are today. For sure. And I and I hope some of the lessons that people take away from today is you gotta be a risk taker and you gotta just go for it. And like I said, you know, you can always fall back to the beach. You know, hearing you talk about you almost had to shut down the company. You you got to that kind of pivotal of mark, you know, you do it. I can imagine, again, you and I were both you know, I, I grew up racing, uh, racing in, in uh, NASTAR and, and ski racing. And like I said, I wanted to go and ski for the U.S. ski team. And my parents had a different plan. You know, after I got a sponsor and was going to move to Utah, they said, nope. And I will never forget, though, like being at the top of the mountain and getting up to the gate and planting my poles and looking down the mountain because, you know, kind of visualizing my lines and, you know, just knowing that you just had to go for it if you wanted to win and just the slightest mistake at a pole or what have you, you know, you're going to slide out or catch and you're going down. But if you don't ski as a winner, um, you have no chance. And so if you approach life conservatively and just, just don't go all in, there's no way that you can achieve all the things that we're all capable of doing. And as Jobs, you mentioned earlier, you know, I always love where Jobs talked about, like once you figure out the world was made up by people that are no smarter than yourself, you realize you can do anything. And I encourage people to just go for yeah. it and do it. And I think you all should hear that, you know, as, as two CEOs, we want people in our organization to bring about change, to take risks, to push the company forward. We need you to do that. Some of the best innovations and new ideas have come from new members on the team that have a, a bright idea. And so just please leave today, you know, just go and take some risk in your life and don't uh, be afraid, be afraid to fail. Um, Jeremy, uh, congratulations, by the way, on the new building in Arizona. Um, I saw the drone shots and, and the video of them putting up the logo on the outside of the building. It's got to be incredibly rewarding. I remember it was so silly. Like I remember seeing Demangen's logo on a table skirt for the first time. And it was the first time our brand had ever been on anything physical. And I'm like, wow, that's cool. It was like, we're real. Mm -hmm. how, did it, how did it feel to you to, to see this you know, tower in downtown Phoenix um, with your name on it? Well, I think it was a bit surreal for all of us. You know, and and, and the, the whole team, all of Integrate, celebrated and you know, shared that, that moment together because you know, like you said, um, well, just to build on what you previously said, because I, I so I so agree with it, is is if if you can picture just a flat organization where job titles don't don't matter, that that's where I want people to get to, because sometimes people feel like they can't sharpen their voice or they they, they can't bring their own leadership because they're not a VP level or they're not a director level or they're not a C level, but like you said, sometimes the best ideas come from places that you would never expect them. And so what we really talk about is trying to build a flat organization or a meritocracy and a meritocracy in the sense that if you're adding value and you're working hard and you have great culture and good competency, you are the CEO of whatever you're doing. And that's the voice that you should bring to the table. That's the leadership you should bring to the table. So I love what you just said. I wanted to build on that. Um, but as far, yeah, it is completely surreal to fly into Phoenix Airport and see the Wells Fargo building, the Integrate building, and the, and the U.S. Bank building. Uh, totally surreal. It's a very humbling experience. It makes me really appreciate the journey, really appreciate uh, the, the team, uh, guys that you know you mentioned, and, and so many more um, that help us got there. But guess what? Just like you said, we're day one 
or Amazon talks about being day one. We're day point zero 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 one. You know, so you know, it's it's not it's not something that you know we feel like oh we've 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 made it or we've done it. Um, and we just feel like we're we're lucky to get to this point, but there's a whole heck of a lot of you know left in front of us that we're excited about. Absolutely, and you know what? We're gonna we're gonna also both have some big risks uh, throughout. Continue throughout our journey. We're gonna have those days where we feel like we failed, where we did fail, and we're gonna learn those lessons from it. You just gotta pick yourself back up, and you just gotta keep going because that's that's what life is about. Well, hey, thank you for joining me, Jeremy. I'm gonna let you get back to it. I want to thank everybody uh, for tuning in to this episode of Demand Gen Radio. I've got a couple CEOs, Jeremy uh, today, and then I've got uh, on the next podcast, Henry Shook is going to be joining us. You know, Jeremy, he was a 23-year-old founder of Discovery Org, and he's going to share some insights about how much he was ready to pass the baton, you know, as the company was getting off the ground and, and going to the bankers and going, okay, well, you know, hey, I got it this far. I'm just our, our founder. And, uh, you know, if you guys want a different CEO, I'll just step out of the way. Well, he he's still there. And so it'll be a great episode uh, for his lessons about being a very, very young CEO. Jeremy, thanks again. And give my best to the team. Yeah, my pleasure, Dave. Enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that is officially going to do it for this episode of Demand Gen Radio. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, feel free to go grab another episode or look for a new one coming up this Sunday. Take care. You've been listening to Demand Gen Radio, bringing you the top industry experts, thought leaders, authors, marketing technology firms, and senior marketing leaders from around the world to teach you the methods and technologies for high-performance marketing.